Welcome to Startup Stories, where we go behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and innovative tech startups in the world. Each episode will bring you in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders, sharing their personal stories on success, failure, and everything in between. So whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or someone that's just generally interested in the world of startups, then Startup Stories is the perfect place for you to gain insight and inspiration into some of the most exciting players in the game. So sit back, relax, and join us on a journey of Startup Stories. Hi, Cor. Welcome to the Startup Stories podcast. Thank you, Jordan. Good to be here. Pleasure. So for those that are listening that don't know who you are, could you give them a brief introduction? Absolutely. So my name is Cor Kjellstrom. I'm the CTO of Concordium, which is a layer one blockchain. Um, I've been with the company for a little over a year, year and a half almost, and um, have sort of a long, long history behind me as a computer scientist, being both a software engineer and, and a manager in, in various companies. I graduated in 1998 uh, with a master's degree in computer science. So it's it's been a while and um, there's been quite a few interesting uh, opportunities along the road. Okay. So Basically, this podcast, we like to really run it back and get to know who Court is truly and, and, and why you do the things you do and the moves that you've made in your life. So can you run it back for me from your earliest memory from your childhood? What does that look like? So I grew up in a very small city uh, in the southern part of Denmark, and both my parents were teachers. I think that did shape me to some extent because uh, teaching has always been a thing that I enjoyed. Actually, while I was studying, I taught computer science classes in the evening, uh, both to kids and, and older people. And I always enjoyed that that portion. So the teaching aspect has always been a thing that, that I, I truly enjoyed. My mom and dad also were quite open to new technology. So I actually got a Commodore 64 when I was like 12, I think, prior to that, they had agreed to us borrowing some of the computer equipment from the school over the weekend. So I, I got a chance to hack along on, on these old Commodore PC-10 machines and, and whatnot. So I was super fascinated in, in the early days by computers. And as soon as I got my hands on that Commodore 64, I was like just there, right, in front of that screen all day long, uh, all night long. And and um, I think to my, my mom's despair, she was trying to pull me out into the garden. It just didn't, it didn't materialize. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent the better part of my childhood programming and found like-minded uh, friends that that enjoyed the same thing. And so we we built all kinds of things, games and demos and and whatnot. And then you know eventually I decided to study computer science and and move north to uh, Aarhus, which is the second biggest city in Denmark. And I took a master's degree in computer science uh, there. So so yeah, I mean if you look back, right, that's definitely I was fortunate enough that my parents actually saw this as an opportunity and and I got a chance to actually spend some some better part of my childhood coding and and messing around with machines but also the teaching portion was was definitely um, transformative for me was there anyone in your early childhood that had a huge influence on you in particular, yeah, definitely my parents and and my my dad who pulled me into to the teaching portion and gave me the chance. He was a uh, deputy director in the uh, there was like this local evening school, and he was the deputy director of that. And so he made it such that I could become a teacher at the age of seventeen. That was a big step for me to try and and do something like that and teach. Basically, the kids I was teaching they were only like fourteen, right? So they were three years apart. So I wasn't that much older, but I was still being put in as a as a person who was supposed to know a lot more. More about computers than they were. And so that was really, really challenging. It, it taught me how you actually need to understand not just the subject matter you're teaching, but also a lot more around it in order to actually be able to tackle any questions that, that might come that you didn't think about 
or in order to go down tangents if if people want to know more, right? If you just know the subject matter, you would come across as a shallow person. So you really have to understand not just like the, the, what you're ta- teaching, but actually a whole lot more. And you have to be able to explain it in a way such that people who don't understand tech will start understanding it. So, that, you know, using metaphors and basically seeing eye to eye with your audience. That's a thing you need to learn if you want to be an effective communicator. And it's uh, it's tricky. It's not something that just that just comes. But, you know, but also if, if you move forward and, and look into to some of the teachers I've had in school, there were also I was a very quiet child. I always did my homework and it was almost a teacher's pet kind of person in the beginning. But then I got some teachers that and you threw me out into the, the deep end of the pool. Right? And um, I found out I could actually swim. And then I started being more outward and extroverted. So I was super introverted as a kid, right? And I actually taught myself to be extroverted by basically saying yes to opportunities that would bring me in a direction where I felt challenged. Yeah, I really like that. Would you say that you're now extra in all realms of life? Or is it more like subjective in extrovert in where your confidence lies? I think my personality is still to be introverted, right? Sometimes I find myself just sinking into myself and and not being part of a conversation, but I can choose not to be, right? I couldn't when I was a kid, I couldn't choose to be extroverted. I can now, and I can easily start conversations. I can easily talk to people. I can easily present to a thousand people without getting scared, you know, but all of these things were learnings for me. It was things that I had to learn. And the way you learn these things is basically you look at an opportunity and then you say, is it dangerous or not? If it's not dangerous, but it will move you as a person, then why not do it, right? I've always been open to these kind of challenges, especially if, if you know, if, if it felt like something that was intimidating, but not dangerous and something that I would love to do, then why not do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you talk about such a thing because the last guest I had on talked about the exact same thing where like the fear of going on stage used to eat him up tie his stomach in knots completely and now he relishes the opportunity to go on stage and actually makes jokes out of it and just really enjoys being there so it's just really nice to hear your version of it because he said the exact same about thing about just doing it it's not going to kill you it's not going to hurt you and you grow from it from putting yourself in it a number of times but what he did say though is just it's common sense. Like you wouldn't go on stage talking about something you don't know about. That's where the fear comes from. Mm -hmm. But the confidence comes from really knowing your subject. You wouldn't go talk to a thousand people if you didn't know what you're talking about, right? That is exactly spot on. Uh, In the early days, I would like over prepare for anything. Now though, I feel like if I know a subject matter, I don't have to sit down and and create uh, like very detailed slides or, you know, rehearse it 200 times. I did that in the beginning. Now, if I know the subject matter, I would make sure that I have a story to tell. So typically, if I have a slide deck, the slide deck will tell a story uh, and each slide will basically be sort of a monomic, right? So when I see the slide, I would know what to talk about. So for that reason, I typically go for pictures now, where in the early days, I would have more text on the slides. These days, it's just an image that conveys information and which I can talk around, right? And so it becomes, I guess, more engaging also for the audience when you have a presentation such as that. But it it does require that you feel super confident with the subject matter, right? So I did spot on, actually. I completely agree with that. Yeah, I like that concept because the picture can speak a thousand words and it allows for elaboration and also imagination for the audience as well. Really nice. Okay, cool. So I'm really intrigued. So growing up, you know, you've had quite a a long career in many different companies and stuff, which is really cool. But what was your first job? (laughs) My first job, I was a messenger boy. I was bringing out little... 
payment invoices basically to customers of a, an electrician, right? So I had, I had to basically go out with them. I realized at some point in time that the reason I had the job in the first place was that it was it was actually cheaper to hire me to bring them out than to buy a stamp. And so I, I did the calculation. <laughs> I realized that no, my hourly pay here doesn't actually add up. So so yeah, that was my first job. My second job was uh, at a gas station. Um, I was just basically tending customers there. Also learning experience, but more of like dealing with strange people that come in that have all kinds of weird requests and then started teaching after that. And then I dropped the other kinds of jobs, right? And because the teaching job was so much more fulfilling and it was also along the lines of me learning. So I learned a lot while teaching. I learned things and I forced myself to go deeper on subjects that I otherwise probably would have skirted across. So, you know, understanding that teaching is actually, it's an extremely fulfilling process to teach something to others because you get to know the subject matter much, much more detailed than you would have otherwise for the reason I mentioned before. So yeah, that's sort of the progression, right, of having student jobs. And yeah, so I continued actually also teaching while I was at the university. I, I got some teaching jobs up here as well when I when I came here and and continued teaching. It was good money, it was an easy job, and it was fun to work with the kids and, and teach them computer science. Would you agree with the statement, the best way to master anything is to teach it? I think so, yes, yes. I think actually, and that is also spot on, right? I think actually uh, that's it. One of the things that was rewarding for me as well was was to see the kids absorb it. A lot of times, some of, you know, there would be different types of kids obviously joining a computer science evening class. Some of them just came to play games, but others actually came to actually learn something. And those were the fun ones to work with. Funny story is uh, about half a year ago, I was visiting the computer science department here in Aarhus um, because I was, I was going to be um, having a meeting with one of the professors of cryptography that we work with in Concordium. And as I walk along the hallway, someone stops me and says, hey, Cor. And I turn around and there's this guy. I don't remember seeing him ever. Then he says, my name is Thomas. I say, oh. And then it dawned upon me, this was Thomas that I taught computer science back when he was like 13. And he, he had now started, you know, he had graduated with a PhD in computer science. And he said, as you can see, I started studying computer science and it was because of the classes that we had. So you really put me on my track. And, you know, that was probably the best reward I could ever had, right, for teaching. I think that was... I, I I didn't really have words uh, for it, right? But it was it was really fulfilling. Yeah, that's really powerful. I mean, that's what you dream of, right? To if you uh, it goes the age old saying, if you can help one person change their life for the better, then you've done your job. And that's I'm guessing how it must feel. It's a similar feeling for why I do this podcast. You know, I'm a founder of my own thing. I enjoy starting up stuff or talking to guests that have either founded a startup or working in a startup. And if we can change one person's life that is listening to this podcast, who's perhaps on the fence about an idea and they can get confidence in listening to someone like yourself, who've done a good deed. Yeah, completely agree. All right. So, you know, you had your first two jobs and then the, the one you really fell in love with was, was teaching, which you say is more fulfilling. Now, let's fast forward your career. You've, as I said, you've had a very extensive career, but then you joined the almighty Uber. Tell me about what that was like working for Uber. For a tech giant like Uber. Back in the day, I joined Uber in 2014, April of 2014. And at that time, Uber wasn't that big. It had around 400 people total and 100 engineers. So I was actually one of, you know, I wasn't the first engineer, but the, the engineering department wasn't that big and you could easily get to know most people. So the Uber office was in San Francisco on 3rd and Mission, I think, in a building that had previously been occupied by, by other startups. And um, they still had the painting on the wall from that previous startup that was there. It was an office where engineers ruled. You would find 
desks with piles of booze and people would have pictures of their family and walk around and in whatever clothes they felt was appropriate for them, right? And it was really a startup vibe. When you came in, you'd see bikes hanging from the ceiling. And there was this whole air of we are building something cool, but we are also almost living here, right? We're mm -hmm. living under our desk pretty much. And people would bring dogs and all kinds of things. What we did was we launched a, an Uber office here in Denmark. The group that kicked it off actually started the office on January the 1st of 2014. And I joined four months later. They tried to prep me for a while to join. And so I had my own company at the time and I wasn't entirely convinced that this was the right thing for me. But I, eventually they persuaded me. And so I went to San Francisco on February, in February of 2014 and, and did a whole full day of interviews uh, with Uber, ending up talking to the CTO there, a person named uh, Tuan Pram, who spent the better part of two hours basically selling the idea of Uber. He told me that first of all, Uber wasn't just about moving people from A to B. It was about revolutionizing the entire transport industry. Because when you have an infrastructure where you can move people, there's nothing in the real world that you can't actually move. And then he started explaining to me how Uber had done experiments on um, moving ice cones around with Uber ice cream, right? Where you open up the app and then there's like this ice cream truck driving around and you can ask the ice cream truck to, to come by you and then you pay for like six ice cones by way of your, your Uber app, right? And you get the six ice cones and the guy leaves again. And similar such things, they had Uber Pet, which was a, an interesting one. So Uber had partnered with this little shelter for homeless kittens. And um, there was this shelter guy driving around uh, and an animal handler. And you could order the, the animal handler to come to your office uh, with a kitten. And you would then be allowed to pet the kitten under like controlled circumstances, right? Where the hand handler was next to the kitten and took care of it so that it wasn't mistreated or anything. And that would cost you something. And then if you were interested in buying the kitten, you could buy it right there and then. So oh, wow. that way... You know, the animal shelter had found an interesting way to <laughs> to get their pets out in the in the real world and, and find a new home for these homeless uh, kittens. Same thing for Christmas trees. There was like this Uber Game of Thrones where you could drive around in a in a truck that had the Iron Throne sitting on it. There was the um, DeLorean from the Back to the Future. Right, we could also get a ride with Dead Mouse, I think, at some point. And and there was like all kinds of experiments with other things than just moving people from A to B. And so all of that actually turned in it later on turned into Uber Everything, where you could you know move things around. It turned into Uber Eats, the whole ice cream truck thingy turned into a, actually a a huge business at this point for Uber. And similar such things, like uh, there was a, a trucking portion of sometimes self-driving cars and all of this. And all of that, Tuan actually laid all of that out for me as a vision of where they were headed. And that's when I, I took the bait. Up until that point in that interview that day, I hadn't actually been entirely certain that this was the right thing for me to do. I had a lot to give up, right? I had started my own company 10 years prior and had grown into some 35 people with some colleagues. And I was getting a little bored and I, I needed a change of scenery, but I wasn't certain it couldn't be done within uh, you know, the context of my own company. But having spoken to Tuan, I was completely sold on the idea that, hey, uh, Silicon Valley, maybe I should go back. I had lived in Silicon Valley back in my early days from 2000 to 2002 and worked out of the dot-com bubble and bust. And so I knew what it was, right? And I knew what was what it was like working for, for startups in the Valley, but I had never worked for something 
as crazy as as was being laid out with Uber, and I, I decided this is this is gonna go big. It just sounds like it can't go wrong, right? And I was so right about that. So that was the early beginnings, and then we kicked off an office here in in Denmark with only six people in it for starters, and started building out storage solutions, um, so basic infrastructure of of Uber, and took that uh, to an office which now has 120 people or something like that. Why did they decide to build a team in Aarhus? Was it because you were there? No, it was based on networks. So uh, Tuan had previously worked at. VMware, uh, where he was a director. And then Travis Kalanick, the founder of Uber, found Tuan and uh, employed him as a CTO. When Tuan left, the team that he had already had an office in Aarhus. And the story of that is he had some pretty brilliant engineers that were Danes that worked for him in Silicon Valley. And, and eventually they they told them that they wanted to go back to Denmark. So they, um, they came and actually uh, resigned their positions. Uh, Tuan countered that by saying, guys, don't quit go to Denmark, but let's kick off an office there. So how about let's make a remote office, right? And so his idea was to basically have an engineering office in a different time zone, which would help VMware have, you know, round the clock on-call schedules and being able to actually have engineers that worked at all times around the globe. And so when Tuan moved to to Uber, it was pretty easy for him to basically reach out again and say, guys, how about you come work for me? And so that was the network. And I knew these guys from my days at the university. So they reached out to me and said, hey, Cor, uh, you should join, right? You've been in Silicon Valley before, you know what it is. We need to scale this up. And so eventually you will be managing portions of the team if you're interested. I joined as an engineer, though. So in the first couple of years, I was coding and building the storage solutions. Yeah, I mean, you've obviously been part of a meteoric rise. And uh, how big were they when you left? So 400 when you joined and how big were they when you left? There was uh, around 27,000 people at Uber when I left and uh, some 5,000 engineers. So the, the company had grown tremendously. It was an insane journey, to be completely honest. I've never experienced anything like it, and I, I, I'm sure I probably won't experience anything like it again. It was probably the biggest learning experience of my entire career, to be at Uber during those transformative years on both the good and the bad, right? I was there from 2014 to 2020, so I saw a lot of stuff go down. Basically. Yeah, I can only imagine. I'm trying to visualize what it would be like in my head, but you know, not many, as you say, would ever get to experience such a thing because how many startups actually blow up like global scale? It's it's so right. hard to come by, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, so yeah, you've gone from this huge company, giant, and all of a sudden in 2020, you start a stealth startup, or you, is, did you start one or join one? I joined one and joined um, one. I'm actually allowed to talk about it. I just can't write it. I promise not to to publish anything about it sure. in writing. And so the company is Travis Kalanick's newest startup, which is called Cloud Kitchens. And so some of my colleagues, ex-colleagues from Uber had joined Travis a couple of years prior to 2020 when he kicked off the company and um, they now wanted to branch into Europe. And so they reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to, to start up a European division and, and kick off a office in Denmark and one in Lithuania and, and in other places and and also start managing not just storage that I had been managing at, uh, at Uber but also compute uh, software networking and site reliability engineering so in effect my organization would be everything that underpins all of the software that runs on top right all of the everything you have in a cloud data center basically right mm -hmm. all of the services that are needed in order to operate a large-scale business databases machines to run microservices, the network that connects them in and out of the world and how you route things around, plus the team that keeps everything afloat 24-7, 365. That was what they offered me. And that was a way bigger position than what I had at Uber. So I decided to, 
to take that opportunity and and joined uh, Cloud Kitchens in August of 2020. My team immediately spanned the globe. So I had people reporting to me in San Francisco on the east coast of the U.S. I had people in Europe, all around Europe, but also kicked off a team here in, in Aarhus. I launched a team in Lithuania, got an office started here, an office started there. And I had people reporting to me in China as well, in Beijing and, and in other places. So effectively, my team spanned 15 time zones and I was frontline managing everybody there. There was 20 people to starters and then it grew to some 30 30 something in, during the course I was there. But, you know, it's, it was a lot of fun. It, 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 what Travis has come up with is if you Google Cloud Kitchens, you'll see that it's really kitchens as a service, right? It's um, The idea is you buy a, a warehouse and then you basically tear out all of the stuff that's in there and then you put in kitchens instead. And these kitchens are full service kitchens where you can go in and cook anything. It's not a restaurant because there's no f- storefront or anything. It's a kitchen that has everything you need. And so then they rent out the kitchens, right? So it's like WeWorks for kitchens. If you have someone who is a great chef, but don't know much about running a business, Cloud Kitchens is for them, right? They can rent the kitchen, they can go in, and then there is a tablet on the wall where orders just come trickling in and they just swipe the order, start cooking, bag the food, put the bag on a shelf, and then someone comes and picks it up. And all of the magic, of course, is that the cloud kitchens, the the actual kitchen facilities are integrated with the likes of Uber Eats, DoorDash, Just Eat, Volt, Somato, um, Deliveroo, all of these delivery services that, that bring out food, right? And they've integrated with most of them so that you can actually have your your store on any of them. Pretty cool, actually. And, and, and actually, I think it's a great idea and a great business. And I wouldn't have left if it weren't because of this big opportunity that I've gotten now, right? I actually, I really enjoyed working there and uh, and getting to know Travis and the team and and um, and working with them. They're headquartered in Los Angeles. So all of this was during the COVID years from 2020 to 2022. But it did open up again in 2021, and, and um, I was actually able to go there and, and meet with the team over there. How easy or difficult was it to adapt going from Uber to Cloud Kitchens? It was actually super easy. Travis is, is one of the founders of this world that I, I have the deepest respect for, I think. Travis is a person who lives and breathes what he does. And so you feel that throughout the organization, right? He has ideas about how to how an engineering organization should be run, and he's deep down in it, right? He's really, really engaged in making sure that there is a strategy for career management, that there are clear cultural values for how we want to behave around each other, that there is a performance culture where you can operate at a normal pace, and, and that's great, and you'll get your salary and you'll get your equity as promised, but you won't get any extra bonuses. But if you go above and beyond, there is a way to measure your going above and beyond by goal setting and following up on the goals, and then you'll be rewarded for your extra work, right? So that you actually have a you have a, a great way both to grow your career, because there's a career ladder and uh, clear expectations at each level, but you also have a performance ladder that basically talks about how did you execute at your current level. So I think all of that is something that he lives and breathes. So Travis has, you know, if you ask him about the cultural values, he'll go on and on for hours about how this mindset or that mindset is important for an organization. And of course, the mindsets were not just for engineering, they were for the entire business. And um, the entire business actually clicked along this whole high-performance culture. So the same thing with Uber, and Travis had also done more or less the same thing there. So it was more like a transition into something I knew already, and it wasn't that much of a, uh, a change, actually, from that perspective. But 
the scope was different, the business is different, and some of the technology was different as well. We were using some of the more modern tools at Uber. We had been building things like Kubernetes-like software, for instance, but now Kubernetes is just something you pull off the shelf and you use it. And so Cloud Kitchen does that, for instance, right? I like that a lot. I mean, it's great a great way to incentivize for individualism, but also as a community as well. Because you said not only were the rewards for going above and beyond your personal goals, but it was team was it team goals as well? Yep. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that's brilliant. Okay, so then you join Concordium in March 2022. Is that correct? Yes, March of 2022. Yes, that's absolutely true. So tell me, why why did you join Concordium and uh, what was you brought in to do? So Concordium is in a space that I hadn't actually touched too much on. It's, it's in the distributed ledger or blockchain space. When I worked at Uber, we built this horizontally scalable NoSQL database from the bottom up. And one of the things we layered on top was a sort of ledger style database. A ledger style database is essentially a database where you write something and then you can never delete it again. And then you can only append to it, right? If you want to delete something, what you write is a tombstone and basically says that this particular data item is now dead. But the, the data is essentially still there. So you have a historical log of everything that ever happened in the database. And a, a blockchain is the same thing, right? It's basically a ledger. You append to it, but you never delete. But you can mark something as being invalid or dead but you can still see the history of the thing right when was it first written what changes did it go through and and when was it invalidated but more so a blockchain isn't just a distributed ledger as the one we built at uber it's also a platform for building applications it's so much more because there's also an economy around a blockchain and so i was intrigued by that whole thing which i didn't know too much about and that was definitely one aspect another aspect of course was that career-wise being a cto of a company is different from being a manager of a an infrastructure piece even though the company was super interesting the scope here was massively different i would be more exposed to end users and customers I would be setting the direction, not just for uh, the tech, but also for product, because I'm also the CPO. I'm doing both. And so I essentially own product direction, but also how we implement it. And I just couldn't pass up on an opportunity such as this one that that has such both career-wise interesting aspects, but also which has the potential to go really, really big. So I, I really wanted that. The way it all happened was I got a call from the then CEO, Lone, and Lars, who is the founder of Concordium. And we, we went back and forth for a while. Initially, I actually turned them down and said, no, I don't, I don't think that's for me. But then as we started digging into it and I started understanding where they were headed with all of this and Lars's vision for what Concordium is going to be and is already, then I actually got sold. Kind of like the situation with Tuan, right, and the uh, and at Uber. Lars told me that blockchain has, has long been sort of the Wild West. And if you look at some of the, the criticism that's been around blockchain, it centers around the use of blockchain for illegal activities. And, you know, it has a bad rep for that reason. Obviously, a blockchain is a distributed ledger, so, and so you can see anything that ever happened. And so forensics are actually quite easy. If you use a computer to track what moved through, you can actually you can actually figure out who received what and when on a blockchain, which is not as transparent in a bank, mind you, right? Anyway, what he said was, but in order for blue-collar companies and, and, um, and companies from the old world to actually start embracing blockchain, there has to be regulation. Right, so regulation is eventually going to come crashing down on, on blockchains. And when it does, a lot of the blockchains won't know what to do about it. We're countering that by building in identity verification into the blockchain itself. 
So in order to open an account on Concordium, you have to go through an identity verification process first, where you prove your real-world identity to an external identity provider. And in return, you get a digital ID that you control in your Concordium wallet in a self-sovereign fashion. So it basically sits on your own devices. And then now you can prove to me, for instance, that you are indeed Jordan Luxford. And the proof is based off of a passport that was verified by this external provider, right? And that's, that's the way I can then validate that this statement is true. We use zero knowledge proofs for, for those proofs. When I heard that, and I heard the idea that, hey, what we're doing here is not just the Wild West, we're actually doing a blockchain where we are catering to the world that will come eventually. I have to admit that I, I saw that, that this was probably going to be, be the future, right? All the banks, anything financial out there is going through exactly this. They've, they've implemented KYC procedures, identity verification for many, many years now. And so very likely the same thing is, is going to happen for, for blockchain. And sure enough, if you see the Mika regulations, what the SEC in the US uh, are looking at, it's happening now. Right. And everybody is now scrambling to get an identity solution. But we already have one because we built it and we've rolled it out and the, the blockchain is live. So we're now adding to it. And, and that's where we headed. How have things changed since the one year and three, four months that you've been there? So when I joined, uh, the first thing I did was an assessment of where are we? Uh, you know, when you land on the ground somewhere, you have to figure out where am I? What are my immediate surroundings? What are what are the biggest fires I can put out right now? And so I interviewed everyone in the organization for 30 minutes, talked to everyone just to figure out who's everyone and how may I help? And I asked everyone the same question. What are the top three things you want me to help you with? And then I got some interesting answers out of that. And I created a list of issues that I could tackle, both in the engineering group, but also in the management group, right? And so for the engineers, I spent time with, with all of them. I basically had an all hands where I presented my findings and where I had grouped them into problems that, you know, where multiple people had said the same thing, it got a higher rating or where, you know, a few people have mentioned it, got a lower rating, but I still walked through the whole thing. And that gave me an easy recipe for quick fixes that would turn the organization, move the organization into a better place. So for instance, we needed a new office. That was pretty clear. We had grown out of the old one. And so I immediately started looking for a new one. Basic things like a um, lunch arrangement. People were spending too much time going out for lunch. You know, instead of could have gone for lunch here for 30 minutes and then go back to work, right? And people actually didn't like going out for lunch. They hated it. Uh, and they really wanted a, a lunch arrangement. So that was another thing that we fixed. And so a lot of organizational stuff, right? Um, people didn't feel empowered enough. So we changed the way we do planning and we do quarterly planning now where everybody's involved in bottom-up, top-down kind of way. So engineers are involved in coming up with what are the, the most important things to do. And product is also involved in setting the product duration based off of what our customers say and where the market is heading. And we're mixing the two things so that, you know, if, if for instance, we, we want to implement a new feature, but the software stack in that particular portion of the code base isn't scalable enough, we'll have to tackle the scalability issue either in parallel or prior to implementing the new feature. Otherwise, we won't be able to actually roll it out. So that's the bottom up meeting the top down. And that's how we do planning. And, and so I've introduced that. And that also is something that um, I know my engineers like because we did surveys on it and they're super happy about the engagement and the ability to actually to drive things. But from a product perspective, we didn't have a product group when I joined. So I also... I got the title of CPO and then initially I started forming my product organization and hired, there was one product manager who did sort of product management. He wasn't a product manager, but we moved him into product management and, and he's now running the show, reporting to me. And then we hired some more people basically to do product management. And then, you know, figuring out how to embed them into the engineering organization, figuring out how to best create long-term roadmaps for the products, deciding what are our products actually. Uh, one of the things we we hadn't decided when I joined was that the wallets, the crypto wallets that Concordium has were actually first class citizens. They were more like sample code of how you can build a wallet on Concordium if you want to. And then 
you know, the idea was that someone would probably take it and build a wallet. Unfortunately, that hadn't really materialized when I joined. So in um, collaboration with my boss, we then decided that let's have some real products around wallets and let's form a wallet team. So we formed a wallet team that's now building iOS, Android, Chromium browser plugin and, and a desktop wallet for Concordium and rolling out new features all the time, right? With our identity built in, with uh, with all of the, the good things that the, the blockchain can do. And then, of course, we also have a blockchain team that builds the actual blockchain. And again, they're figuring out what's next is a tricky thing because on the one hand, there's this whole race to being the most scalable blockchain. There's been a long, you know, for the past couple of years, all of the, the existing blockchains have been competing about being the fastest one. But guess what? That's not really that interesting if you don't have the right features that will actually bring business. So we are balancing the need for speed with the need for being useful and usable. And so right now, the focus in the group is actually on lowering the threshold for adoption, making it super easy to use blockchain as a headline. Blockchain for everyone, right? For your mom, for your grandmom, even if you can, right? Let's hide away all of the complexities and give all of the benefits that blockchain can give to the world. There are tons of use cases for, for blockchain, for Web3, but there's also big corporations out there that sit on tremendous amounts of data that they are never, ever going to give out. Because guess what? They also know that data is where the gold is, right? So there will be data that we would be able to break free from these big silos, but there will also be data that we won't be able to break free, and which is really the IP and the core IP of some of these businesses, and we won't ever be able to take it out. And that, I think, is a realization that came to me rather early when I started looking at, at this whole space, that you're never going to see a decentralized version of Uber, because what would be the business model, for instance? Right. Uber, for instance, has huge databases of enormous amounts of data, exabytes of information of every single trip that was ever taken since day one is stored in those databases. The analytics that go with that, and if you throw AI and, and big data on top of that, are tremendous, right? You can you can do all sorts of interesting things. For instance, um, at some point in time, uh, we did an experiment when I was at Uber. Someone took a look at if we equipped all of the cars in New York City, in Manhattan, with a camera, how long would it take to do a version of Street View, if, like Google Street View, right? How fast could Uber do that by just equipping all of the Uber cars in Manhattan? How much time do you think, Jordan? I, my mind can't even comprehend it, like hundreds of hours of hours. Less than five minutes was, was the estimate. Wow. <laughs> More than 95% of Manhattan would be covered in less than five minutes, simply because of the sheer amount of Uber cars driving around all the time in all the streets, right? Mm -hmm. So if you all of them filmed at the same time, you'd get all the footage you needed for Street View in Manhattan that quickly. Wow. And so... That kind of information is interesting, but more so what's interesting for the city, for instance, of New York is where is congestion in my city? When does congestion happen? How could I potentially route differently so that people would get moving quicker in peak hours and uh, not get stuck, stuck in traffic you know, during rush? So that kind of information is also something that Uber has, and they have a much better picture than the cities do because they have all of these cars driving around all the time and they know exactly when they're slowed down where they shouldn't be they know exactly how fast they can go on different streets and they know exactly how fast people got from a to b and they know it hour by hour day by day week over week and so they have exceptionally detailed data and that's something you can monetize and you can sell it to cities now why would they ever give that up right they won't and so there's a lot of information i think that you will never see floating out into decentralized space because businesses are businesses and they have to make money. But there's also the other data, right? Big tech of the world keeping your private information and selling that off to others and creating profiles about you 
that you don't know about and giving that information away, which is definitely something where, uh, you know, Web3 has a say and, and where the self-sovereign ownership of information, self-sovereign data is very sympathetic. And hopefully that's where we're headed. That's what we enable with Concordium. And we enable a world where you can control that information instead of it being controlled by someone else. I'm going to use your question that you ask your team, because I really liked it how you said about the it was the top three things that I can help you with. I think that's a really powerful question. So you're a, you're someone that's been at Uber from 400 people and you've seen it go to 27,000. Of course, Cloud Kitchens and now Concordium. So what would you say are the top three ingredients you need for a successful startup to thrive? Well, first of all, you need a great idea. In my early days, I joined some startups that had they had a great idea and it could have been good, but either something else was wrong or the team didn't execute, right? So you need a great idea. The second thing you need is a savvy business person to execute on the business side of things. So actually it starts with a business person who has a great idea and who can sell that idea. Because you can have the best tech in the world, but if, if you don't have anyone to actually meet the market, your tech is never going to go anywhere. So I, I was in one of the companies I worked for was a tech company more than a business company. And so we had great tech. It was really cool, but we didn't have anyone who managed to sell it. And so, so eventually we ran out of money and we folded, right? And I think a lot of tech startups actually do that. It started by techies, but they don't realize that they will need a very, very strong business side in order to break through the market. And when you sell something, it's just, it's horrible, right? You have to keep pushing, 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 and you have to face adversity and you still have to push and you have to smile uh, even though people slam the phone on you and don't want to talk to you and just have to keep trying. And you also have to have that great idea. So great idea. We also have to have a great team because it's not just enough to have the business idea. You also need a great tech team in order to execute. So you would need a tech partner in your business, right? You need the CEO slash sales guy, but you'd also need the tech guy who can really, really execute. Someone who initially knows the stack and can get something up and running, who has this let's get it up and running mindset first and let's cut through the through all of the mist and basically just hammer out the right features really quickly, uh, release early, release often, and release value immediately so that, that every time you figure out what your what your customer's next priority is, you implement it and you push it out. And you get feedback and then you change and you release again and you iterate that way, right? So constant iteration and constant delivery. And you would need someone who is both a good translator of business requirements into tech, but also someone who can execute. So find someone with that skill set and then you are almost set because you also need someone to handle the finances, right? I think that's the... Mm. That's the typical trio, and those are the three ingredients I would, I would put in there because the finance guy would have to work with the VCs, keep a close eye on your day-to-day -day spend and your burn rate, and make sure that everything lines up and that you take the, the right financial risks at the right time. Otherwise, the business guy would just take a lot of risks and the tech guy would just build whatever and hire 200 people. But you have to keep tap on everything and, and basically make sure that, um, that the business can stay afloat financially as well and, and, and be ahead of the curve in getting getting financing when, when you go out. If you can find those three people and you can you can make them work together as a unit, you can move mountains. Absolutely. Does the CEO slash sales guy, is it integral that it is the CEO that leads that or can you hire someone to do that? Well, I think you need someone who has skin in the game in the beginning. Circling back to my Uber days and Travis there, Travis is the CEO of he was the CEO of Uber and he's now the CEO of Cloud Kitchens. And that means 
the world to that business because he is in the driver's seat and he has skin in the game, right? You know the difference between being committed and involved, right? It's like an English breakfast. In an English breakfast, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed, right? Mm -hmm. Because it has skin in the game. So it's the same thing here. For instance, Concordium uh, Lars is also in the driver's seat here. And that also means the world, right? Because at the end of the day, it's his project. It's his vision. And so he has a, a deeper need to make sure that this actually happens because he really wants it and he, he lives and breathes it. And the same thing goes for Travis and, and some of these founders that, that are in the driver's seat. If you hire a CEO, that person will be a hired gun and they may have, they might be great, but they have other motives, right? They might actually be eyeing an IPO and pushing for that instead. And then what you'll see is they are sub-optimizing the business in order to get to a point where they can monetize. Which that could be, I'm not yeah. saying that always will be, but you have to question the motives, right? Why are they joining? Are they joining because of the vision or are they joining because of personal gain or are they joining because of an opportunity? What are they joining for? So when I join a startup, and I've done that many times, I always look at the vision and the business first and see where this is headed, just like I explained before with Uber, with, with Concordium, with Cloud Kitchens. What is the vision? Where are these guys headed? And do I believe in this vision? Do I believe that this, this founder is living and breathing this? And I, can I buy into this vision? And can I make it my own vision? And if I can, then I can also live and breathe it, right? And, and then it becomes mine. I try to adopt the vision, but I can only adopt the vision that I believe in. So, you know, I think yeah. that's important also as a, as a motivator. That's what motivates. That's a fantastic way to look at it, because why would you enter something half-hearted? So the fact that you want to be all in in your own way as well is fantastic. I really like that. Okay, so Concordium, what's the long-term goals? How far does Lars and yourself want to take it? Well, we'll take it all the way. So <laughs> what we're building out right now is, so we have the identity layer, right? And that identity layer is really becoming sort of a checkbox more than a distinguishing feature because everyone now needs an identity layer. Our identity layer, though, is going to be expanded dramatically as we move forward because we see it as a key component in building the next level blockchain that is playing nicely with regulation and therefore is ripe for modern business. On the identity layer, we're, we're basically expanding it so that, that you can... In your wallet, you don't just have your government ID, which could be you know, a digital representation of your passport or your driver's license, but you can also have all other aspects of your identity there stored as identity cards, known as verifiable credentials. And that could be you know, your membership of the local chess club. It could be any kind of loyalty card, frequent flyer cards. It could also be other things such as your reputation score. For instance, if you already did some online trades on the blockchain, Someone might have computed a credit score for you and vouched for your credit score based off of your transactions on the chain. They can then say, this person actually did all these transactions. We give them a score of 90%. And then there is a meaning to that. It can be things like you've gone through an extended vetting process. Someone looked at your finances, at anti-money laundering lists, at protected persons. And, and then they basically vetted your attributes and found out that you're not on those lists. And then they create a verifiable credential with all of that information in it which they sign, right? So they vouch on your behalf. And now you can prove to me, hey, I've already gone through the KYC process here. You can let me into your lending protocol, which would believe the person who vetted me or the company. And then I can go back and check and see, oh, looks like an accredited provider and um, Concordium actually vetted these guys or they are already being vetted by someone else that I trust. And, and, and so it's fine. I can go ahead and trust this. So we're building that out and that will enable a whole slew of new DeFi applications where it's super easy to, to go ahead and use them. First of all, we are also lowering the threshold for using our wallets and making them. They're not as easy as we want them to be right now, but we are basically having our eyes set on usability and adoption. But going into that future, you will see financial instruments moving onto 
Concordium or the space around us where Concordium can be leveraged for this, you'll see the identity layer being enabled for other blockchains and Web2. You will see self-sovereign ownership of all kinds of things. You'll see new financial instruments that you hadn't dreamed about before popping up and being used in a way that's financially sane and regulatory compliant. And so that's where we're headed right now. Basically creating not just a blockchain, but a complete ecosystem of applications that allow you to manage your day-to-day finances, your day-to-day identity in a decentralized way where you are in the driver's seat and you don't pay exorbitant fees to someone, but actually can have a reasonable and cheap way to interact with their financial system and your identity. Cool. I can really see, I mean, just coming through the screen, I can feel the passion that you have for this vision. And I think that's a running theme with Uber and Cloud Kitchens that you had there as well. So I'm really intrigued to find out really what your personal motivators are. Like, why do you, after everything you've achieved throughout your career, still want to get out of bed in the morning and, and go at it again? And, and, you know, a new day's a new day and keep pushing. What, what motivates you? What's your why? Circling back to the vision of Concordium, the idea of self-sovereign ownership and the ability for you to control your own data is something that resonates uh, with me. Previously in my career, I was I was working for the Danish government on some of the first digital ID solutions that we have here. We've, we're quite a digitized uh, society. We have a digital ID that's a government-issued ID already, which you can uh, use to log into your taxes and your healthcare data and, and such things, right? You can also use it to log into other websites. However, it's not self-sovereign. So when, when someone into integrates this solution, they will get a slew of information about you. In such sense, you can't really pick and choose what information you give to a certain website. You give the whole thing, right? Your first name, your last name, your birth date, other such information. And actually, as much as I like the idea of having a digital idea, and as much as it makes things better, it's still not the right implementation in my mind. It needs to be controlled by you. So we need to move to a world where you, where we, we go back back to the metaphor of you having a wallet in, in your back pocket where you have your identity papers and you can choose who you show it to and when, right? Not a world where, you know, someone keeps that information on your behalf and when you need to interact with someone, they just send everything over and now you lose control. So philosophically, that actually resonates with me. I think that's a much, much better solution. And that's something we enable here at Concordium. And then, of course, also, it's a huge challenge for me. I always looked at the next challenge. Being a CGO of a company such as this is a huge challenge. It's something that made me uncomfortable, right? Just like I said in the beginning. And so it motivates me a lot to go into something that I think I can do, but I honestly don't know, right? So I I go in open-minded with everything I have and and try to make the most of it and do whatever I can to make this a success. Full well knowing I never did this before and I'll probably learn a lot and hopefully I'll succeed, but I actually don't know, right? So that uncertainty, the ability to challenge myself and working in a space that I believe in is actually what motivates me. Love that. And you've kind of almost answered my uh, last question. I was going to ask, you've took the leap in Uber, Cloud Kitchens and Concordium. And in general, you're in, with your life with regards to the teaching, that was well out of your comfort zone as we talked about at the beginning. So I think there's something to be learned there already for anyone that listens to this. But in summary, if you've got someone that is very much on the fence about taking a leap, whether it's starting their own business or joining a startup or doing something that scares them, what would you say to them? I would say take a look at the opportunity and look at what the upsides are. Look at what is the worst thing that can happen. How bad can it possibly go? And then take a leap of faith. If it all lines up, right, and if it's not dangerous, if you can learn a lot and uh, there's potential upside to it, go for it. 
But of course, also look at what you're leaving behind, right? If that's worth more to you, then don't. In my time, I've done a lot of crazy things. I mean, I moved to the US back in the day when I was 28. I got an opportunity and, and I discussed it briefly with my wife and we decided, you know, that, hey, great opportunity, let's go, right? And so we moved to California and I started working out at dot-com startups. Um, another opportunity was at Uber when I was the site lead of Toronto. I got the opportunity to try and be the site lead of uh, a 400 person office and i think there was like 60 engineers or something um, that was under my purview but i was actually the site lead at the entire site in toronto in canada in a country i had never visited in a company that i was working for super uncomfortable thing to do but i decided hey that sounds like a great learning experience let me try it right because what's the worst thing that can happen well i can say that it didn't work out and it can move back and um yeah and that's that right and so all of these opportunities always came with a little bit of a safety net i guess and same thing when i moved to California, I could always just go back to Denmark and probably get another job, right? Whatever. So if you if you play it that way, and if you think about the opportunities as real opportunities, then, uh, you know, never just brush them aside. Always take a look, figure out, does this actually make sense? Think about what could happen, right? Just fast forward a little bit into the future, down that path of taking that opportunity, and then weigh it up against what you already have and make a decision. And don't be afraid, right? There's so many opportunities where you can always go back. There's always a safety net, almost. Couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cor. I really appreciate you joining me on the Startup Story podcast. I thought it was a fantastic listen and I'm sure those that are listening will get a lot from it as well. Thank you for having me, Jordan. It was a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and learning more about their journey in the startup world. I'll be back soon with another exciting episode featuring a new guest. So make sure to subscribe to Startup Stories so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media for updates and additional content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to me. And as always, I appreciate your support and feedback. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.